This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, we hope you'll choose to sustain us in this work. There are so many more stories to tell. We've only scratched the surface. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is an all-volunteer operation, but we do need your help to cover our production costs, audio editing, marketing, and website management. Here's how you can help. 1. Become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or 2. Make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit longliveprint.co support for more information. I knew I had to hire good people and I was never afraid of good people. I was never afraid to hire people who I thought were better designers, better thinkers, better commissioners than I was. Sometimes they would just come in for a few months and sometimes they stayed for a few years. Sometimes they were on staff and sometimes they were freelance. Some of them you know, were already established great designers and some of them were at the beginnings of their careers. And I loved it. I loved working with talented people. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop. I'm Patrick Mitchell. For decades, the New York Times Magazine has led the conversation about the best designed magazines in the world. Much of the credit for that goes to today's guest, Janet Froehlich, one of the most influential and groundbreaking creative directors of all time. For the better part of her career, Froelich navigated the male-dominated world of magazines and joined other pioneering women, Sippy Pinellas, Bea Feitler, and Ruth Ansell, in paving the way for the women who would come after. After learning the ropes of magazine design at the feminist arts collective Heresies in the late 70s, Froelich moved on to work with the legendary editor Clay Felker to launch a magazine at the New York Daily News, followed by a wildly successful 24-year run as the creative director of the New York Times Magazine. She was also the co-creator of its sister brand, T, the New York Times Style Magazine. She's an art director's art director, says the noted author and design critic Stephen Heller. She's also a New Yorker through and through, having lived and worked in the city her entire life. In this episode, Froelich recalls her own personal 9-11 story and what it was like to be in the newsroom on that day, as well as how, in only three days, she helped create the magazine cover that inspired and informed the memorial to the Twin Towers and those who lost their lives there. She talks about other Times Magazine covers that left a mark, about her early years as an artist living in Soho and hanging out at Max's Kansas City and why you should never be afraid to hire people better than you. Deb, it's really good to have you back on the podcast. I've missed you. Thanks, Patrick. I'm glad to be back. I've been busy. So this episode, we're talking to Janet Froelich, who is a, an important person to both of us and sort of a contemporary. And in the process of doing our research for this episode, started looking up women art directors and kind of went down a rabbit hole because before the 90s, really, they're very hard to find. And there are three who kind of come to light. And I looked in the history of the National Magazine Awards. I looked in the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame. I looked in the AIGA medalist list. 
And the ones you come up with pretty quickly are Sippy Pinellas, who uh, died in 1991. She was an art director at magazines like Seventeen, Charm, which Roger Black listed as one of his five best magazines of all time. It's it's absolutely one of my favorite magazines and a, and a huge influence for me. And Glamour, House and Garden, Vanity Fair, and Vogue. Now you hear those names and you'll see a pattern developing very quickly because the next name you come to is Bea Feitler, who died in 1982 and worked at Harper's Bazaar, Vanity Fair, and Rolling Stone, as well as Ms. Magazine, mm -hmm. which was, she was at the launch for that. And then Ruth Ansell, who Janet talks briefly about, who worked at Harper's Bazaar, along with Bea Feitler, and the New York Times Magazine, like Janet Froelich, but also House and Garden, Vanity Fair, and Vogue. And so you've mentioned this before, the difficulty women have had breaking out of what we used to call the women's categories into sort of more general interest magazines. And that history is certainly supports that thought. But before we get into talking about Janet, I thought we'd take the opportunity to talk about our female mentors. I know you had a really important one play a really big role in your career. Well, I certainly have to bring up Paula Scher she was my teacher at SBA when I came to New York in 1984, and she hired me to work at her studio at the time called Coppell and Cher. And certainly, you know, I, I wouldn't be working as probably even in the industry today if it hadn't been for her. Um, it was a huge, huge break, and um, she really taught me so much. Yeah, you were headed onto a more uh, graphic design path when you moved to New York. Well, when I moved to New York, I was just like absolutely thrilled, first of all, just to be here. And, you know, I really felt like my mentors at the time were, were these designing women, Paula, obviously, one of them, and Karen Goldberg, another, Henrietta Kondak, another, and, and also Louise Feely. And these um, women were hugely influential to me at that time and to a lot of other people. What would you say, what sort of traits, characteristics do you feel like you picked up from them in terms of making your way in this business? All of these women were incredible type designers. And when I, when I moved to New York and I, I was a student, of theirs, I felt like I, you know, I felt like I had found my species. I fell in love with typography. Um, prior to that, I didn't really know what typography was or designing with typography. I didn't, I didn't know it was a thing. <laughs> what about in terms of surviving in sort of yet another male-dominated business? Well, you know, at that time, women were really taking off in graphic design, and in particular those women had been working in the record business. It wasn't the same as working in the magazine business, which certainly was more male dominated. But I didn't really know much about that at the time. And certainly when I got into magazine design and, and had a passion for that, it became clear that it was hard to move from a sort of a department position in you know a designer position into a, a bigger position because those top positions were usually held by men right um, unless you crossed over into female content areas like shelter magazines and beauty and fashion magazines right so Patrick what about your female role models yeah I mean unfortunately 
I haven't worked for a lot of women. I did in my first two jobs, and I would say I learned everything in those first two jobs about how to handle myself in a company. You know, I was, I had come out of sort of a bro culture in college, and my first job was at Whittle Communications, and it was a very balanced in terms of men and women working there and men and women running things. My first boss was Bette McLean and Lawrence Arnett who I really learned everything about how to handle myself professionally and with coworkers at that company. And then I moved to Dallas and worked for a woman named Leslie Becker at the Dallas Morning News, who taught me how to stop calling women girls. Keep in mind, this was 1986. And just continued the sort of, you know, she was just a great role model in terms of how to handle yourself, how to deal with conflict, how to deal with other people. And they were important lessons. And then later, I think about how much I learned from a lot of the women who worked for me. You don't have to be your boss to teach you things. Mm -hmm. And I, I learned a lot, you know, surprisingly, I would, would not apply this until I started my own studio. But there was a photographer in Boston that I worked with named Susie Kushner and her rep, Marilyn Kottenbach. They're both still out there working. And the way they handled their businesses, I just thought was just outstanding and such a perfect. They were great models for how to run a business in a way that looks professional and easy and with grace. And so thank you to both of them if I haven't thanked them enough already. Yes, and, and I'd like to thank mine to the people that I mentioned before. Although, you know, there have been a lot of women that I've worked for over the years. But I would say that Paula really gave me a good foundation and a good start and I learned so much working with her. I shouldn't forget Oprah herself, who, although I didn't spend much time with, the way she handled herself in day-to-day -day business at the magazine was the same as these other women. It was a consistent theme in my experience with working with women in general and women bosses, the way they tend to instinctively handle themselves in business situations. We should move on now, and I don't want to forget about, you know, there are lots of really talented women art directors these days, and we, we don't want to ignore them. You know, of course, there's Gail, Gail, and Gail. <laughs> they, they don't all need to be named Gail, but we're talking about Bickler, Anderson, and Towie. You, of course, uh, Natalie Kershaw, Michelle Outland, who we interviewed in episode three, Carla Frank, who we both know, and, and so many others, and many who you'll hear in future episodes of the podcast. To close things up, as we think about the history of women magazine art directors, where do you think Janet fits in this history that began with Sippy, Ruth, and Bia? I would say Janet is one of the most influential magazine designers of all time, female or otherwise, and groundbreaking because she was one of the few of them who succeeded outside the traditional women's categories. Yeah, I don't think you even have to qualify. I mean, that's, you know, historically, unfortunately, that's kind of an extraordinary accomplishment because women have not been given the opportunities nearly as often to work outside those categories. But I don't think we need to make a qualification. I think, you know, Janet's work and history prove that she's absolutely one of the great magazine art directors of all time. So let's get to the interview. Let's meet Janet. All three of us have worked in newspapers and magazines. Janet, can you talk about the cultural and practical differences between magazines and newspapers and what they might be able to teach each other? I mean, the newspapers are, are for the most part daily. They're immediate. They're about on the ground reporting journalistic uh, approaches to stories. Uh, look what's going on in Ukraine right now. I, I 
you know, that's very much a newspaper's purview. Um, and magazines take a longer view, you know, they, they sort of step back and, and they come out with less frequency. Um, so a lot of it is the sort of difference between a long, the longer view and take on news and, and the short, quick reporting. When you went to a monthly, did it, was it kind of a freak out for your body clock? Because everything is so, it just seems so slow by comparison. It wasn't a freak out, but it, there, there's a grace to being able to think about things for 10 seconds. I, you know, the weekly magazine, which was the New York Times magazine, was almost painful at times. The speed with which you had to produce covers, um, uh, well-designed magazine, good journalism, and beautiful photography on a weekly basis is a Herculean task. It's really hard. <laughs> on a monthly basis, you you have some breathing room. You have time to step back. That said, editors tend to take their deadlines and and push them. Uh, and sort of wait till the last week to put the whole magazine out. So you frequently had a weekly deadline on a monthly. Yeah. Uh, it sort of depends on how you deal with actual deadline. Obviously, the New York Times gave you a, a wonderful palette for doing great work. But what was it like showing up for work every day at the New York freaking Times? Well, it's an amazing place. It, it, it's an exciting place. You're it's filled with interesting people, smart people, people who question everything and think about things that that you wake up in the morning thinking about because you need to be prepared. That was the biggest part of it for me for the first few years is trying to figure out how to be prepared. We used to have what they called an ideas meeting every morning, every single morning in the editor's office, a gathering of the people who led each of the departments. And you, you had to be up on the news. You had to have read the whole newspaper before you got to work in the morning, which was a challenge, a tough challenge, but an exciting one and, um, and a great one to, to try to meet every day. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Mag Culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. Working at the Times gave you a platform to cover news and make news. And I'm thinking about the 9-11 cover and the Matushka mastectomy cover. Tell us a little bit about working on these famous covers and any other ones that stand out. Uh, a couple of other ones also stand out. Romanian orphans, which I was thinking about because of Ukraine. Um, and then a year after 9-11, the reimagining, rebuilding New York issue. Um, you know, the, the Times Magazine has this remarkable platform to, to speak to people. And it's, so many people got the newspaper on Sunday. So many people looked at the magazine. So you knew when you created um, a, either a story or a, uh, an artwork or a cover that it was going to find its way onto the coffee tables or the desks of important people. 9-11 was a fascinating case in point. I live in Manhattan and on that Tuesday... September 11th, when the buildings came down, when the planes went into those buildings, I was on my way to work. And I knew that I had to get there really fast. It was the last subway uptown, as a matter of fact, for I don't know how long the subways were, were gone after that. And we immediately set to work ripping apart what we were working on and, re and creating a new magazine. The Times Magazine comes out in those days, it was about 13 days, uh, is my recollection. Now it's more like 10 days before you actually received it in your Sunday newspaper. So we had to be thinking about what people 
people would think about 13 days from this moment, not what we're thinking about right now. And the buildings, were, the dust cloud was still settling in New York. We still didn't know whether 33,000 people or 3,000 people were dead in that rubble. And we had to start thinking about a magazine 13 days hence. And Adam Moss was the editor through that period. He was a remarkable editor and he asked all the right questions. And immediately everyone decided that the way to deal with this was to ask the smartest minds, the best writers, the best photographers, the best editors to each independently come up with a, a personal take on the events. So they went to great writers, they went to great photographers, and Adam asked uh, the art department to think about a memorial. It was crazy to think about a memorial. This was Wednesday morning, probably a day later, and I walked to work and I walked home. It's it's couple of miles and asked us to think about what we want to see on the cover 13 days hence and, um, and asked us to think about memorials. So I started calling artists uh, with a great deal of humility and somewhat an embarrassment because some of them lived in lower Manhattan and had looked out the window and seen the planes a day or two beforehand. And asking them to create a memorial when they didn't even know what had happened yet was nuts. Uh, and most of them just gave me a sort of blank no. But I called Ann Pasternak, who was the creative director of, of Creative Time, and she is now the director of the Brooklyn Museum. And she knew of these artists who had all been working in the North Tower of the Trade Towers, uh, most of whom survived because they weren't there overnight or in the early morning hours. And two of them, um, Paul Mayota and Julian Laverdier, had, had been a team working um, on something that they instantly turned into a kind of memorial. They were, they were shooting beams of light into the sky from the top of the North Tower when the towers were still very much you know, solid buildings in the city. And they took that idea and morphed it into a drawing for these beams of light, two beams of light that would go to the heavens. And it was a pencil sketch and we printed it in the magazine in the inside pages, but it, it was inspired and inspirational. And we started to think about how to make that into a cover. And uh, looking at photographs of lower Manhattan, I looked through, I mean, Kathy Ryan, the photo editor, uh, director of photography now, I think, came up you know, with literally hundreds of pictures that we looked through. And none of them gave us the kind of background that would uh, feel like the haunted landscape that was in Lower Manhattan until Fred Conrad's picture taken the night uh, or the late afternoon after the initial collapse of the buildings in which you have this sea of, of, of emptiness uh, taken from the barge near New Jersey uh, looking towards ground zero and a dust cloud moving horizontally across the picture. And we took it to a digital house, shoot, shoot digital, no, Nucleus, it was Nucleus. And you have to think, and this is 9-11-2001, where Photoshop was, it was pretty rudimentary still. Mm -hmm. And it took six, seven hours late at night, me working with the guys at Nucleus, trying to take this horizontal dust cloud and morphing it into two vertical shafts. But when we were finished, Adam said, that's the cover. And we put it on the cover and kind of within a year, um, the Municipal Arts Society and Creative Time worked with the city on creating the, an actual memorial that replicated what the cover looked like and has every single year since then illuminated the night sky in the week of 9-11.
you know, it was a, an amazing experience. It was a way to process. I think about it right now, if it's going on in Ukraine, and I feel this, this great longing to be in a magazine environment where people are actually thinking about what's going on and how to make sense of it. That's the extraordinary pleasure of working on a magazine. You know, it's funny. Usually there's like a competition for those memorial designs that takes years, right? You know, world famous architects submit all these designs. It seems like that one just got slam dunk approved, probably because of the power of that cover. I don't know um, whether the cover, how much the cover actually had to do with it. Um, Sort of hope that it it helped influence, but it's, it's the haunting quality of the light that I think it, it, and it's not a physical thing because there are physical things down in the ground zero at this point. It took years to build them, but they're there. And there were a couple other favorites you mentioned. The Matushka and the Romanian orphans. Um, sure. Matushka, it was an interesting example of pushing the boundaries of what is allowed on, on a, a national magazine that reaches the coffee tables of families where children, um, and that's what people always worry about, that your young children might be exposed to images that, uh, that are disturbing, that shake them up a little bit, that make them question things that are frightening. Uh, Matushka was this really interesting artist uh, who had had a mastectomy and who had decided to use her body and, and the mastectomy itself as, as an art form. And so she designed a dress um, that covered the one side of her body that still had the, her natural breast and left the other side open like a kind of like a kind of toga. And you could see the scar where her breast had been. And she's a beautiful woman. And she photographed herself and she did a lovely job with the images and they were quite haunting. And we were looking for a, a cover on, on the story about breast cancer and, and we decided to try it. You know, we have these mats and we would put mats on the, on images and show them to our editors and they would kind of say yay or nay to things to be worked on. And I was blown away because all of my editors were men, every last one of them. And the editors of the newspaper have to approve the New York Times Magazine's covers. I don't know if that's still the case now, but it was the case every single cover, every single week, we had to walk down to the third floor, which is where the masthead was located and show our covers and get an approval on it. And once in a blue moon, they would reject them, but every single editor said yes to this. So it, it must've had some compelling some compelling factors that that made them kind of look at her and say, it needs to be seen, it needs to be shown. Readers were not all delighted. There were a lot of negative letters and a lot of positive letters, but I think it changed the landscape a bit. And I think it created an environment or it helped to create an environment in which it was more acceptable to talk about it, to show it and and to try and, and work for solutions to medical issue that still is with us. Would you talk about also the other cover that you mentioned, the Romanian children? The Romanian children is just a very fan. This is the power of a, of a global reach newspaper. James Noctway had been in Romania photographing the horrifying way that children who were orphaned were tethered to cribs, given practically no food, treated in a horrific fashion because the state couldn't deal with it. And he has this incredibly powerful vision. And he had presented the magazine with a photo essay, which we ran. 
it was an incredible outpouring of sympathy and, and resolve. And Americans adopted great numbers of Romanian orphans after that. So the reach of the cover on the Times Magazine could not only change events, but also change individual people's lives. Were you able to fight for the stories you felt strongly about? You can fight. You don't always win. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you can certainly fight. Uh, You know, it was always sort of interesting. Kathy Ryan and I worked together for, and Kathy Ryan's the photo editor of the magazine and still is. And we worked together for well over 20 years. And we were frequently the only female members of a meeting, a major meeting on stories. The, The magazine was predominantly male edited. The newspaper was predominantly male edited. And so there were any number of times where we fought really hard for a a woman to be on the cover of the magazine, and it was refused because the stories were considered not as interesting, not as important, not as relevant. It doesn't happen, I think, as much any longer because everybody is more aware of the reasons for assumptions based on point of view, male point of view, male-dominated point of view. Do you feel that you were ever able to change their minds or... I think probably it's a little hard to recall right off the bat. If I think of something a little later on as we're talking, I'll bring it up. I found a post on the website, A Photo Editor, about an at the time rumored move you were making to Real Simple. And it included the line, she's likely just burnt and ready to make some serious cash. Uh, Which is funny, but even funnier was one of the comments that said, Real Simple can pay Janet all the dough in the world. The fact of the matter is that it's a magazine that had its day years ago. She would be smart to sock the cash away and retire. (laughs) But that kind of came true, no? Well, I don't know about sock the cash away. The Times notoriously did not pay art directors, creative directors as much as, as a lot of other magazines. But that said, those other magazines didn't pay that much more. So I don't know if salary is really the most interesting aspect of all of this, but I didn't go to Real Simple for money. And the Times probably would have made an attempt to, um, and they did make an attempt to match any offers that were there. Uh, It was more about wanting, um, after 25 years, wanting a different experience, wanting to be on the newsstand, wanting to actually see what mass market publications were like. And it just seemed like an interesting step to take. It's a funny quote because Real Simple hadn't been around for that many years. I I know. Five or six. They're already already calling it washed up. Um, (laughs) But it started out as a very different with a very different mission than than it had at the point at which I arrived there. And I I thought it would be an interesting challenge. Given your record, I can only imagine how many times you got calls from other magazines trying to lure you away from the Times. Can you talk about some of them? What were your closest calls? Any regrets? No, actually, I mean, a number of people called me at various points, and it feels sort of funny to get into them now just because different people got hired and different things happened. But the closest call that I thought was sort of interesting for me was that I almost, as I think this probably happened to a dozen other art directors, I almost went to J. Crew. And J. J. Crew, I think, went, liked to think of itself and its catalog as a magazine and looked to um, editorial minds to try to, I guess, grab readers and intrigue potential purchasers of J. Crew clothing. So I talked to them quite seriously and very luckily at the last minute, a big Texas conglomerate bought them out. And the woman who I had interviewed with, Emily Woods, who was the daughter of the founder of J. Crew, was let go. 
and the whole thing sort of fell apart. So I luckily had not accepted a position. Switching gears just a little, can you imagine making a weekly magazine during COVID? Yeah, I can imagine it, but I, I mean, I can, I, I actually should shift the gears and ask you what it's like, Deb, because you actually probably do that at this point. I mean, I know it's not weekly what you're doing there, but it's probably got a lot of tight deadlines. It takes a while to get used to remote working. The thing that I can't quite imagine is what it's like not to have the closeness of all those people standing around the counters that are frequently in the art departments of magazines, talking to editors, photo editors, designers about what's going on on the pages you're designing. It's an incredibly freewheeling, wonderful give and take that has to have been missed sorely for the past couple of years as COVID prevented everyone from being in the same room. Absolutely. What do you miss most about making magazines? Just what I was just saying. I, the, for me, it, it was it's all about collaboration. It's about the generation of ideas and where they come from and listening to each other and adding to ideas and making them more complex and layering them and getting other viewpoints. It isn't a solitary occupation by any stretch of the imagination. You have to be a good collaborator to work in this business. And I, that's the thing I miss the most. We'll be right back. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. Number one, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or number two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co support for more information. In 1977, you joined a group of women artists to produce a magazine called Heresies. It was described as an idea-oriented journal devoted to the examination of art and politics from a feminine perspective. Can you talk a little about the circumstances that brought you there and the role it played in your career? I started out in in life and in and in my professional life as a as a painter. I studied fine art. I went to college and to graduate school uh, as a fine artist, and I spent ten years working on a fine art career. I taught school to support myself. And I lived in in Soho, uh, which was a very scruffy artist colony in the early 70s. And I had a lot of art art world friends. But my career as a, as a painter really never took off. And I think partly, I, I mean, I sort of discovered later on why that was. But um, I started to look around for other ways to live a creative life. And I, I thought about going to law school. I actually took the law boards and, and thought for about 10 seconds about spending three years of my life going to law school. And I became involved with a group of women artists on this publication, Heresies, a feminist publication on art and politics. It, it came about in, in, a, in an era, I mean, it's still a little bit like this, but much less so, in which all of the art, the shows and galleries and museums were all of men. There were plenty of women artists, but they couldn't get a show. And if they got a show, it was in a very small backwater gallery somewhere. And every time there was a Whitney Biennial or a major group show mounted, it was 99% male. There were very few opportunities for women artists and it made the women very angry. And some of them were incredibly talented. Uh, all of them were incredibly talented women and very serious artists. 
So they banded together and created this journal. Um, this had an interesting premise. Each, each issue was edited by a different group of people, a collective, and each issue had a different focus. Some of them dealt with culture, with art issues, and some of them dealt with issues of, of um, personality and focus or sexuality. There was one issue called the goddess issue, which had to do with rethinking religion. Um, but all of them were focused on art and the art world. And I became involved with them uh, for the second issue and I became a member of the major main collective. And I discovered while working with them that I just loved the process of, of working with a group of people, of working with writers and editors and, and designers. And I think I developed a love of magazines through working on this journal. I, I stayed working with them for about two years and until I got a job working at the New York Daily News and there was no time left for heresies. You went from one profession, art, that was difficult for women into another one, graphic design. And while there have been women who have changed magazines forever, like you, it's still a male-dominated business. Why do you think that is? Oh, it's a really good question. Um, and I've thought about it over the years because, you know, frequently I would I would interview candidates for design positions at, at the Times or even at Real Simple. And 90% of the candidates were female. They're all women. But by the time you walked up the ladder, especially in the earlier years of my career, there were only men who had the top jobs. It's hard to say exactly why that was. It, it has to do with the same things that happen in every other field out there. Um, women tended not to uh, push themselves as hard. They tended to make other decisions about having families and dealing with the responsibilities that children entail. And they also had to do with the way the people at the top, the bosses who were mostly men, saw them and perceived them and gave them opportunities or mentored them. Uh, whether that's all still true now, I, I don't know. I have to leave that to people who sort of study that that stuff. I think it might be changing um, little by little. It's certainly not as bad uh, in, in art direction as it is in, let's say, conducting. I mean, there are so few women conductors of major symphonies. Why is that? Janet, you said that you learned publication design at Heresies. Were you self-taught or did you have mentors there? I didn't really have mentors at Heresies because they were nobody knew what we we had no idea what we were doing. We had to get people to come teach us paste up some mechanicals. You know, those were the day pre-computer days, and and it was it was all about rubber cement. And this is one of the regrets that I've had over the years is that I never really studied graphic design. I never really studied typography. Um, I I studied the work of other people who came before me and people who worked simultaneously. Um, with the work that I was doing. And so it, I, I hate saying I'm self-taught because it, that's a very arrogant thing to say. I, I, I stand on the shoulders of so many other people, but I didn't study it in school. In school, I studied painting. I will say that the skills that I have as an artist, having studied painting, have an enormous impact on the way that I worked and the work that I did over the years. Did you have strong female role models? I suppose a few. Um, you know, the biggest one is Ruth Ansell. I, um, Ruth Ansell was an art director at the New York Times way before, I, not way before, but a decade or so before I got there. And she had been a close collaborator with Bia Feitler, who is a sort of hero in graphic design world, in the magazine design world. 
And Ruth Ansel, I remember because I collected UNLCs, those wonderful <laughs> publications that Herbal Ballin and Aaron Burns put out. Um, there was a piece on her and they called her a rara avis, a rare bird. And she was a rare bird. She was, um, she was the only woman art director uh, in her time. I mean, there was C.P. Pinellas and there were a few others before her, but there really were so few of them. So, you know, she stands out as, a, as an important figure to me. As a woman, do you feel that you've had to fight for some respect during your career? I'm sure I did, but it wasn't a predominant feeling. Uh, for whatever reason, at the times, I, I was always respected. And I always felt listened to, and I felt like I belonged, and, and like I was part of the team. You've worked for two editors who were in the ASME Magazine Editors Hall of Fame, Clay Felker and Adam Moss. How do they compare? Two men in two different eras. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I didn't, I, I know Adam Moss really well, and I, I worked very, very closely with him for a, a bunch of years. Clay Felker, I didn't know as well. And he was just a, a figure in the newsroom at the Daily News, a really interesting moment in time for the Daily News, which was trying to compete with both the New York Times and other af afternoon newspapers in the city and, and had developed something he called the Tonight Paper. Um, these are newspaper wars that you'd never see today because nobody reads newspapers any longer. But Clay Felker, he, it was just interesting to watch him try to transform a tabloid uh, news organization into a, uh, a sophisticated processor of, of news for a, a much more literary, sophisticated audience. And I loved his story ideas. I liked the way he packaged things, but I didn't really know him terribly well. Adam Moss is one of the best magazine minds of his generation, of anybody's generation. And he's an inspiration to work with. And everybody who's ever worked with him, for him, credits him for the best of, of their work. He just had a way of pushing you harder and further, um, had a way of asking questions, the answers of which would bring you to a much more exciting solution. And it just had a way of pulling people together as a team. So you predated Adam at the Times. And so when he came in, what was the brief? Adam came in as the associate to Jack Rosenthal. And I think um, it was done to Jack Rosenthal, who was the editor at the time, uh, much from a previous generation, an older man with a much more conservative point of view. And... Uh, I believe it was Joe Lelyveld at the time, who was the editor of the newspaper, wanted someone to be a kind of foil to that, wanted somebody to push Jack a little bit. So Adam was the associate. So Adam had been there for a couple of years by the time Jack left to retire, to move on to the Times Foundation, and Adam took over. So they, the brief for Adam, I think, in the beginning was to push Jack a little bit towards a more adventurous way of editing the magazine. Adam, I think, established his own brief, which was to make the Times ever more relevant um, to continuing younger generations of readers. In 2004, you and Stefano Tonki partnered to launch T, the New York Times style magazine, widely considered one of the most beautiful magazines in the world, and certainly awarded as such over the years. I'd love to hear how you partnered with him to create such a legendary brand. T came out of, uh, the Times had always published a, a series of what they called part two magazines. 
and they covered a disparate group of subjects, men's fashion, women's fashion, home design, travel, and food. And uh, the idea was to try to bring them all under one roof and give them all an identity. And they were, I think, advertising magnets. And the Times began to see that it had a product that could generate revenue. So they brought Stefano in and he was a men's fashion editor. I think he had been at GQ, no, at Esquire. But Stefano also deeply connected to the art world. His husband, partner at the time, but then became a husband. David Maupin was a gallery dealer. Um, they lived with a lot of fine art. The connection between the low arts and the high arts, fashion design and, and painting and sculpture, um, the, the lines of demarcation for those things were completely blurred. And Stefano brought all of that to the table with tea. And this was just right up the alley for me, coming out of a fine arts background, loving um, working with artists, which I'd always done at the Times Magazine to solve a lot of the visual problems that we have. And so Stefano and I kind of together came up with calling it tea, which is a little bit modeled on um, uh, an Italian publication called D, but also W. And, and gave the, the magazines a kind of, a, a particular kind of identity that, that would be strong enough to cover the disparate subjects and still feel like one publication. Well, I was always enthralled with the way you took the T. I mean, it seems like a natural idea to take the big giant T and play with it and create bespoke openers with it. You know, over the years, I've always loved taking a particular problem or assignment and sending it to like 10 different artists or eight different artists. I had done a lot of that and asking them to interpret it. And I think a little bit here, credit to Fred Woodward, who did Draw the Cowboy with a whole bunch of illustrators. And I, I always had that in my head as Draw the Cowboy. I, I want to repeat that, but do it in my own way. Um, and I had done it a number of times um, and in the magazine. I had done it in design issues. I, um, so it, it was sort of a natural. It was just part of my vocabulary to take the big chunky tea that Matthew Carter had done for me and send it out. It wasn't just to artists, though. We actually we sent it to Fendi, and they did a fur tea. We sent it to Let There Be Neon, and they did a neon tea. We sent it to the Campagna brothers who do furniture and they made an upholstered tea. Uh, we mowed a tea into, into a, a cornfield in upstate New York. We just had a load of fun with it. And when I left the magazine, David Seba kept it going and the last tea was done by Fabian Barron. So it kind of the full circle was really quite nice. I, I, I was very sad when they let go of the tea, but I am an admirer of the current design of tea and, uh, and I'm an admirer of the tea magazine now. So You spent 22 years in the newspaper business. And even though you were mostly working on magazines, newsstand magazines are a different animal. How did Kristen Van Ogtrop convince you to take the leap and join her at Real Simple? I, you know, I like Kristen a lot. And, and so partly it was just her infectious personality. And we had a couple of lunches and I really enjoyed uh, being with her. But she wanted something that she wanted to make real simple into something different. And she, uh, you know, her husband works at the New York Times Magazine. She's married to uh, a story editor at the Times Magazine. So she kind of knows the magazine really well. And she wanted some aspect of what we had done at the Times Magazine to be brought to bear on Real Simple. 
And I, it excited me to, um, to think about working with her. I, I liked her. I also think I felt that things were changing at the times and I wasn't quite sure that I wanted to stay there through whatever the changes that were going to happen where I, you know, Stefano, I, I knew was going to leave. Um, Adam was going to leave. Adam had left, I think. So I, I think it was just Kristen herself and, and her personality. And, and also I, I just liked something about the challenge of doing, as I said earlier, doing this newsstand magazine. Was that the first time you'd ever worked with a woman? No. Claudia Payne was the deputy editor to Warren Hogue. You know, I, I saw, I think, six sets of editors at the times. So usually they, news editors comes in, they fire the art director, but I always stayed on. I think that has as much to do with the New York Times' allegiance to people as it does to my own success at, at the magazine. Claudia Payne was the deputy to Warren Hogue, but she was a very forceful deputy and, and a force to reckon with. And so I think she she was the first woman that I, I worked for in that sense. How did things end at, at uh, Real Simple? You know, it's it's a sad and telling story. The, um, the magazine group was sold, Time Inc. Time started it and sold it to someone else, like Meredith? Meredith came a little bit later. Um, it was Time Warner who was trying to uh, consolidate its holdings and, and, and trying to figure out how to staunch the losses of several of their publications. Real Simple was a success and was making money. So they started to take money from Real Simple and not put it back into Real Simple. And we started to have budget cuts and people overseeing our, our issues and our mission who had nothing to do with the magazine. They were business side people. And you could see the handwriting on the wall that things were changing in the magazine business, that money was drying up, that the vision for the magazine was going to change. Kristen felt it and I knew she was going to leave. And I was getting to a point where I didn't need to work all the time. And I was getting to an age where I didn't need to work all the time. So I put it all together and decided it was a moment to, to let it go. Good call. It only got worse <laughs> after that. It got a lot worse. Yeah. 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 But the business is, is a challenging one now. And, and it's kind of sad to me. I used to sit on the subway and see the newspapers that I had designed, the magazine that I had designed in people's hands on the floor, this, you know, kind of being stepped on, but it was alive and, and, and people were living with it. I, no, nobody does anything but read their phones now. And I don't necessarily think that's bad. I'm not one of those people who looks back and says, oh, the good old days, it was so much better. I just think it's different and, and we all have to learn to live with it. It's kind of, and it reminds me a lot of what happened to 12 inch record album covers going down to those CDs. tiny little CD cases and smaller still, like a little icon on your phone. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. Do you buy any magazines now? I am a subscriber to The New Yorker, to The Atlantic, to New York Magazine. I get the New York Times delivered to my husband and I read the paper every day and I get the Sunday paper. But other than that, I don't, I don't buy them and I don't, 
I used to be a magazine junkie. I used to describe myself as a magazine junkie. I had piles of magazines on my desk all the time looking to see what people were doing. It's a natural to kind of not do that anymore. Yeah, um, you have a limited selection, but is there a magazine that you really kind of admire the design of right now? Um, yeah, you know, the ones that I subscribe to, yeah. Yeah, um, certainly. And I and I do admire T. I think Patrick Lee does a lovely job on it. I think it's a well-designed. And I know there are so many niche magazines now, the, the, the food magazines and the lifestyle magazines and the fashion magazines that are geared and made, printed on extraordinarily lovely paper. And you probably print uh, all told 500 copies and they go to 500 people, but they're gorgeous. And there are a lot of those, but they don't have enormous influence in the culture because not enough people live with them. You're a New Yorker through and through. You were born in Brooklyn and raised in the Burbs. Which ones? Oh, I was just raised in Queens. I don't know if that's a Burb. <laughs> it's like a lot of hip young, young people live in Queens now. <laughs> but born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens. And what did your parents do? My mother was a homemaker and my father ran a business called Froelich Lightcraft and he designed and manufactured lighting fixtures. My father died when I was a little girl and my mother took over the business, but she was not a designer. So she just, she went in a couple of days a week to keep the business afloat as best she could. She called it going to business. <laughs> That's her phrase. Gosh, did you see? She was um... the only mother of any friend I ever had who worked. Have you ever lived anywhere else other than New York? Not in a really permanent way. I mean, I went away to college and I went away to graduate school and I lived for a, about three quarters of a year in Paris when I was 20 years old. And I took care of a baby. Uh, I worked au pair. But other than that, no, no, I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> Things have obviously changed since you were a kid. Manhattan is different. Brooklyn is different. The art world is different. What was the young Janet's dream in those days? I wanted to be a fashion designer and I drew all the time and I drew pictures of girls in, I'm sure this is a classic girl thing, but I drew pictures of girls in fancy dresses and on the cover of the book was always fashions by Janet. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of embarrassing at this point. Um, and then in high school, I had a remarkable mentor, a man named Philip Frankel, who ran something called the Art Squad. And we did signs and posters, and I designed the yearbook, and I designed the logo for my school newspaper, and I loved graphic design. And then I went away to college, and graphic design was commercial art, and it was really denigrated, and I was very influenced by that, and so I became a painter. And so it's like full circle, you know, when I hit my late 20s, early 30s, um, getting into graphic design. What was the first magazine you can remember having an effect on you where you actually noticed the design? We got Time magazine when I was a kid in my house and we got Life. And I think Life probably had the most effect on me because of the quality of the images and, uh, and because it was well designed. You lived in a loft in Soho before Soho was Soho. In the 70s, parts of New York were still frontiers, including Soho. What was it like being in your 20s in that world? It was a mixed bag, I, you know, and, and the nostalgia for it creates a, um, a, a kind of glossy answer that it was romantic and it was exciting and it was wonderful, but it was also hard. It was about working all day in your studio and going out at night to art bars and talking art with 
people and trying to figure out what the next step in your career might be. Um, it was about trying to find inexpensive places to live and, and to work, which wasn't easy, but it's a whole lot easier then than it is now. So I suppose even that. I'm a rube from Texas. I didn't get to New York till the 80s, but even then Soho was really rough seeming back then. I never found it rough. I guess I was used to it. But if you got into a taxi and asked them to take you to Broom Street uh, or Mulberry Street, which I, I lived on Mulberry, which was actually more Little Italy um, in, in a factory building in a loft, but more Little Italy than Soho. But the cab drivers didn't know where any of those streets were. Now you said Broom Street and they know exactly where to go. But it, you, the neighborhood evolved slowly. You know, I remember the first bar that appeared in Soho and the first boutique that appeared in Soho in the midst of cigar factories and, and doll factories and um, mannequin factories that proliferated and rag factories. And the first loft that my husband and I lived in uh, had a stencil on the elevator, Flexite Plastic Novelty Company. Are you still living in Soho? No, I live west of Soho now. It's, uh, it's called sometimes West Soho, but it's also called uh, Hudson Square. It's pushed far enough beyond West Broadway to no longer really be Soho. When you were in Soho in the 70s and you were in the art world, that was like primetime Andy Warhol, Studio yeah. 54. Did you get involved no. in any of that? No, not in any kind of major way. Although I used to love to hang out at Max's Kansas City. And, you know, he was there as were, you know, a lot of other people. Yeah. But for the most part, you know, I was I was in a, a, a sort of less cool group. <laughs> How would you advise young Janet to follow her dreams in 2022? You know, I always told young people who came to see me either with their portfolios or just to talk about careers, work for the most exciting person you possibly can. Don't go for the money in the beginning. Go, go for the, the ideas, the talent, the brilliance. The, you want to work with good people. So that's first off. The second thing is a, I don't think editorial is very right now is a is a career with a lot of potential. There are so few uh, places to work any longer that I think you really have to kind of mix it up and um, and work for different kinds of organizations and work for different kinds of designers to get a sense of where you can ply your craft. I'm giving you credit for this because from my memory, it seemed to happen on your watch. And I don't think it could have really happened anywhere else. But over the years at the Times, you've brought in a who's who of incredibly talented future art directors. Among them, Rem Duplessis, David Seba, Dirk Barnett, Gail Bickler, Joel Kyler, Lisa Naftalin, Louise Strauss, Chris Dixon, Michelle Outland, Jennifer Pastore, Richard Baker, Catherine Gilmore Barnes, Elizabeth Spiridakis, Scott Stowell, Andrea Fella, Emily Crawford, Christina DiMatteo, Jeff Clendenning, David Armario, Christopher Martinez, Dragos Lemney, and Jeanette Hodge Abing. My God. At Heresies, you were part of a collective. Can you talk about how you built your own design collective at the Times? Well, it, it wasn't really a design collective, but you know, when you put out a magazine like the New York Times every single week and you have to do a good cover every single week and create a good design and it isn't formatted and you don't want it to be formatted, you need good people to work with. You can't do it yourself. And to run a department, you're not even designing most of the time. You're coming up with ideas or figuring out which ideas work and then pointing to somebody and say, you do that. So I knew I had to hire good people. And it's also spread out over 20 something years, 22, 25. I actually think it's 25 years. Um, so I, I looked I, and I was never afraid of good people. I was never afraid to hire people who I thought were better designers, better thinkers, 
better commissioners than, than I was. So I spent a lot of time looking at talking to good designers and, and hiring them whenever I could. Even sometimes they would just come in for a few months and sometimes they stayed for a few years. Sometimes they were on staff and sometimes they were freelance. And I loved it. I loved working with talented people. So I guess, and, and I think I'm a good collaborator and I, I think I, I'm, I'm good at sort of setting people off in the right direction and inspiring them to figure out how to take the puzzle that's the New York Times Magazine and, and make it their own. So, I, you know, very luckily and happily got to work with a lot of wonderful people. Some of them, you know, were already established great designers and some of them were at the beginnings of their careers, um, one or two, just fresh out of school. Yeah. The big operation, you know, and weekly is hard. Weekly is 52 covers a year. In 2006, Janet Froelich was inducted into the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame, joining Sippy Pinellas and Bea Feitler. Ruth Ansell was inducted in 2011. On the ADC's website, Gerald Marzorati, her former colleague at the New York Times Magazine, paid Froelich the ultimate editor's compliment. She's a journalist, he said, a journalist doing with concepts and photographs and illustrations and type treatments what we editors do with words. You can see some of Janet's most memorable work and read a transcript of this interview on our website. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. Number one, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or number two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information.